Well, welcome back to Sheep Stuff. You should know. I'm Dan Macon up here in, in Placer County in the Sierra Foothills. Um, I'm joined by Dr. Rosie Bush. Looks like you're in the office today. Yes, I'm dressed like I'm in the tundra. <laughs> <laughs> That's our first post-Thanksgiving recording. And uh, while folks in other parts of the country will, will think we're wimps, it is getting pretty cold here in Northern California. Yeah. Oh. I was oh. at the gym at six o'clock this morning and it was set 27 degrees. <laughs> someone, you know, we finished our workout, the seven o'clock group comes in and someone from the seven o'clock group goes, man, I wish I had those hand warmer packets. And it just made me laugh from Ryan's <laughs> story about Idaho, how us Californians think the hand warmer packet is all we need. And probably at 30 degrees, it's all we need. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Emma, Emma texted us yesterday morning from Moscow, Idaho, and uh, it was eight degrees. She was getting ready to walk to class, so I told her she's tough. Yeah. She's tough. <laughs> I've, have I told you the story about going to? Uh, this is a, a something we say in our family now all the time, but I went to um, a farm auction. Up uh, kind of near Bend, Oregon, Sisters, the little town of Sisters, Oregon. And it was actually, it was my 40th birthday. So we came, we went to have a drink after dinner and ran into a cowboy who was selling horses at the sale the next day. And it was obviously not the first bar that he'd been to that night. <laughs> so we ran into him the next morning. He was riding a horse to kind of market it before selling it. And it was trying to snow and it was just kind of a miserable day in the Cascades. And he's he's all hunched up over his saddle and he's got a styrofoam cup of coffee resting <laughs> on the saddle horn and go, hey, how's it going? And he looks at us and goes, huh, you got to be tough to live in the West. <laughs> <laughs> so whenever somebody complains about the cold weather now in our family, huh, you got to be tough to live in the West. That's amazing. <laughs> 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 you or you got to recover quickly <laughs> exactly 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 yes yes awesome. how was thanksgiving thanksgiving was good it was good we had a lot of food and a lot of family it was fun how was yours you were in idaho it was great it was great we cooked thanksgiving dinner in emma's little two-bedroom apartment and, oh wow uh, so that was fun and <laughs> and got to see lots more of that part of Idaho while we were there. It was it was really fun. It was That's good. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan and I were talking about how fun the challenges to have everything out at the same time when you have one <laughs> oven and only like four burners. And I can imagine in a small apartment with no counter space, that becomes yep. even more of a challenge. Yep. Yep. It definitely made us think about how to simplify Dinner it was just three of us, so it was that was kind yeah, of easy. Yeah, that helped. It was fun. What did, <laughs> now? What did you guys have for Thanksgiving? We did turkey and then pan giblet gravy. I was telling you that's kind of well. I think it's the star of the show. It's the thing that takes the longest. It takes yep. a couple days. Yep. And then um, my grandma's old stuffing recipe, which is more of a, it's less of a bread stuffing. It's more meat and spinach, and it's Ooh. so good. It's really yeah, that good. Sounds good. Yeah, it has like apples. I mean, it's just like 
really that interesting. Really it's one good. of those kind of retro rest. And actually, I made her green thing, which is one of those jello molds that <laughs> I, I had Jocelyn help me make it. And it's one of those things that you really don't want to know what goes into it. <laughs> Yeah. She's like, we have to eat this. I was like, it's <laughs> so good. <laughs> but yeah, when you think about what's in it, it's like, really? Yeah. <laughs> How does yeah. this all go together? But yeah, it was fun. What'd you guys have? We barbecued a rack of lamb from one of our lambs. And uh, the the Weber New Zealand website has amazing lamb recipes. Huh. So we did it. Um, it was um, a dry rub on the lamb, and then we made um, chimichurri. Mm -hmm. And when you pull the lamb off the barbecue, you set it in the chimichurri, and then you you put that on it as you you know you slice the chops up to eat. Oh man, it's good, so good. So that was we'd had that. Emma made. Um, roasted vegetables it was potatoes and onions and yams and brussels sprouts nice. and we had dr rosie bush's homemade bread recipe that yeah. she had made. <laughs> i made <Yeah>. four loaves <laughs> <laughs> two of uh, them got consumed in that one night and then i sent the other two home <laughs> nice very yeah. nice and we yeah. left we left all the leftover bread with them on leftover yeah. lamb and Good. so she should be ready for finals week now. Yeah, that is kind of the fun thing about hosting is that, I mean, we try to send leftovers home with folks, but you end up with so much food and yes, yeah, it's fun. Yep. Yep. Makes for good lunches for a while. <laughs> yes, it does. It does. Definitely. We also did while we were up there, I, I uh, barbecued a venison backstrap from the deer that I got this year. Oh, nice. And then we had that leftover. And um, if you ever want a good little easy lunch, little venison medallions cold with cream cheese and pickled wax peppers is about the best cold lunch I ever have had. They are so good. That sounds so, good. So how do you make a venison backstrap? So this one I marinated. Um, for 24 hours, it was in, uh, let's see what, olive oil, balsamic vinegar, Worcestershire sauce, which is easy for you to say, <laughs> um, garlic, salt and pepper, and ginger, fresh ginger, and then just grilled it. It doesn't take hardly any time to grill because you don't want to overcook it. Yeah. And uh, it was really good. That's it's cool. really tasty. Like the day before Thanksgiving, Brian was out duck hunting with his dad and his brother and they, so they got some ducks and they gave him all to him. Oh, cool. <laughs> it's like, great. You get <laughs> no to clean those. And he's like, well, I'm going to put them in the fridge for a day till I clean them. I was like, nope, I have all my Thanksgiving stuff in there. You have to clean them and freeze them right now. If we're going to keep them. So he did, but. <laughs> so does, he get, does he skin them or pluck them? Well, it depends on how motivated he's feeling. So this time he just breasted them. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. But skinning them would be a good way to do it. Yeah. I mean, I guess I've, that's pretty similar to breasting them. I've never hunted ducks. I've cooked some wild duck that somebody's given us, but they had mm -hmm. already done all the all the prep. I've decided, I probably have told you this already. We we raise our own chickens, like do a couple of batches of 
broilers a year just so we have chicken in the freezer. Uh-huh. I would so totally rather butcher a ruminant than a bird. Yes. They're so disgusting. <laughs> well, then oh ducks have that whole added element of surprise where if you find a pellet in your <laughs> so you have to chew slowly. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And I, so this is probably way more into the weeds than we should go, but <laughs> In California now, you have you can't use lead ammunition for hunting. Right. And uh, so what I have found, I've, I've gotten two deer with copper bullets, and the copper comes apart more than the lead. Huh. And so we were we were having a nice venison burger one night a couple of weeks oh, ago. No. Sammy got a little chunk of copper in her Oops. burger. <laughs> Oops, sorry. That happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's like how so, I eat fish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yep. So I wanted first, this is going to be a totally random podcast, <laughs> but that's what you get for the week after Thanksgiving. Yeah. So good. It goes. <laughs> what is your favorite way to prepare lamb? What's your favorite cut? I guess is the first, first question. Hmm, that's a hard question. I think for an, in, oh gosh, it depends on where you are. Like I really love the shanks because I love that slow cooked braised over mashed potatoes, no gravy. <laughs> polenta. Have you ever had it over polenta? <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. That's yeah. good. Especially yeah. like a sausage polenta or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do love shanks, but I have been recently introduced to Denver riblets oh, and, yeah. on a smoker and oh my God. Gosh, those are so good. The kids love them. Those are fun yeah. to eat. <laughs> those are my girl's favorite. How do how do you like you cook them on a smoker? Yeah, we just I, for Father's Day I got Brian a pit boss, like a small one that goes with the camper. Yeah, and so we did them on that, and it's still quick. It takes no time at all. But then it kind of, I don't know. It's a little. It's. I think it's only like five minutes per side or something like that. And I can't remember. I always have to, I have to text Eric Shane because he's the one who talks <laughs> every single time. Wait, how do I do this again? And the most important thing he'll say is you have to use Lowry's. I <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. We like to do them on the Weber and I, I forget where I found this recipe, but I'll, I put them in a, um, like a baking dish. And then I season them. I'll have to use Lowry's, but we we have a some friends up here in Placer County that do a, a kind of a seasoning mix called Cow Camp. Oh, cool! And they're uh, they're lamb, they're sheep people and cattle people, so they told me it was okay to use Cow Camp seasoning on lamb. <laughs> but put that on, and then like a quarter cup of brewed coffee, and about a half a beer, huh. and I cover them. For this like sounds very Irish. It's really good. <laughs> Cover them for like a couple of hours. And then I take them out of that, put barbecue sauce on them and put them over direct heat just so they get a little bit crispy. Mm-hmm. Man, they're so good. Yeah. It's fun they're just so seeing good. the little riblet bones pile up in the yes. kitchen. It's like going after them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I have you ever done, um, I've tried smoking shanks like do a 10 hour smoke on the Weber. Wow. And it takes a lot of prep up front. You got to get all the silver skin off and and trim them really well. But 
then it's just like you're a Viking or something. You just have this huge lamb drumstick <laughs> right off the bone. That's cool. so good. Yeah. I've never, I haven't done a lot of smoking. I've done, I'm trying more of it, but we don't have a charcoal grill anymore. So oh, yeah. it's hard. And you know, the pit boss, we, we just got, but it's in the camper. So we haven't <laughs> taken it out much, yeah. but yeah, no, I would love to do more of that. I know I see everyone's triggers. I'm like, Hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, uh, how do you like to cook leg of lamb? What's your favorite way to have leg of lamb? Bone, first of all, boneless or bone in? Bone in. Okay. Yeah. And you, I do it where you put the garlic in and I don't know, I like, I guess, I don't know if it's the traditional way, but we put it in the oven and I, I roast it for hours and yeah. yeah. So it starts at a high heat and then you drop it low. Yeah. And, so it's low and slow. It kind of yeah. crusts on the outside. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I want to try it. So do you know who um, Thomas Kelleher is? He's a, he's a really famous chef. He has French laundry. Oh, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, I, I knew of him first because he was the chef that um, Disney, was it Disney? Well, for the movie, Rat yeah, it's Disney, Ratatouille. He's the chef that they consulted with for that movie. And wow, I just funny. love that movie. And so he has a prime rib recipe. It's called Blowtorch Prime Rib. And instead of doing the oven, having the oven crust it, you use a blowtorch to literally just sear that crust sear in. Yeah. And it is just so fun. I don't have a kitchen blowtorch. And so Brian got a blowtorch from outside. It's fun to have <laughs> a giant blowtorch in your kitchen, just like flaming this prime rib. And then it goes into the oven low and slow for a while. It'd be fun to try it. Try it, lamb. Yeah, there. it's just fun. <laughs> You see the fat like curling in front oh, of you. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> I've done I've done boneless leg of lamb like a brisket. Oh cool. So really low and slow and, and with a lot of smoke. Yeah. And um that turns out really, really good too. Mm -hmm. And makes great sandwiches the next day. Yeah. Really, really tasty. How how do you like to do racks? How do you cook rack of lamb? You know, I haven't done, I don't think I've ever made a rack. I know my mom used to do them. She used to do the crown racks yeah, at Christmas. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh, they're so beautiful. And so she would do that with the, it's like a, it's almost like a stuffing or something yeah. inside. Yeah. And then roast it like that in the oven. And oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. And I don't feel like it takes that much time because it's such a small cut of meat but then with the stuffing it has to be yeah i don't know it's those I've, are beautiful i've only done that once did it on the barbecue but that that may be what the macon family has for christmas dinner this year yeah the crown about that yeah it's so pretty yeah yeah looks yeah. good on a table actually that's something that i've been interested to talk to you guys about is like you know how do you are you inspired by what you do and all of that by seeing these beautiful things that people make with the products like lamb, your wool? Uh, I just think it's so neat. And I've seen all these artists doing pictures of people's animals. And it's really cool seeing how much people appreciate not only the animals, but the products that come from them and just create these incredible, beautiful things. It's like, I don't know. 
It is. It, yeah, it is. I do really enjoy that. I, when we did more direct marketing, we, we, uh, sold lamb to a French restaurant here in Auburn oh, on wow. a fairly regular basis. Um, <laughs> most of the places that we sold lamb to, we couldn't afford to eat very often, but, yeah. <laughs> but we, we would go occasionally. And, and at one point, this was a little bitty restaurant, but we went in and of course ordered lamb and, and uh, when they brought it out, our friend who was the chef and owner said, just so you all know, these are the people that, that raised the lamb that y'all are eating tonight. And we got a standing ovation in the restaurant. Yeah. And, and I think oh. Ryan has had that story, similar story when they went to, I think he and his wife went to Mulvaney's Yeah, and they did. And it's like, you know, I, I don't know. It seems just like a, it's not something you would expect, but it just seems like a really neat thing to see people appreciate that kind of work that goes into that. And it, I think it, it, uh, you know, it can be easy when the market's like it is right now and, and all of those things to get kind of depressed about our product, but then to get that kind of direct feedback from people that appreciate the quality and the, the, just the, um, the work that goes into it. Yeah. It, it kind of keeps you going a little bit. I think. Yeah. I recently saw a post, I think, I can't remember a shoot. It was something Metal Mama Barbecue, I think. Lamb, I think it was Fan of Lamb that had it on their Instagram. And you could tell they were somewhat new to lamb and that she, they did a rack of lamb for Thanksgiving and her husband described it as filet mignon on a bone and you know and it was like such perfect description because i've had my father-in-law said he used to do kebabs for guys at when he worked at fresno state and he would do beef lamb and pork on one kebab and they'd be like oh this beef is so tender (laughs) that's actually the lamb and it's it's just so like especially when you're comparing it side by side it is so tender and amazing Yeah. 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 We've, we, this is gosh, probably been almost 15 years ago. We did a lamb tasting at our County fair and we cooked bonus leg of lamb on the barbecue. And then we handed out samples (laughs) and most people said, my God, this is the best tri-tip I've ever had. How did you season it? (laughs) With lamb. Yeah. With lamb. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. Uh, what, don't they, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Don't they have like a lamb cook-off in Denver? They, they do. And then there's, there's also been those, um, kind of regional, I don't know if, if the lamb board's doing them anymore, but there's been those regional, um, kind of lamb tastings. What are they, what do they call those? Mm. Oh, it's uh, there. We went to one in San Francisco, um, and they had five or six restaurants all doing different types of lamb dishes and, you know, paired with, with high-end wine and stuff like that. It was I mean, really, I guess really those fun. people know that they're going in to consume lamb, but it is fun seeing people that have no idea that they're eating lamb and be like, wow, this is so good. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Where's the best restaurant lamb you've ever eaten? What's, what's, what stands out? Oh, man. Well, I guess I 
don't have the best memory for this, but all the Basque restaurants are amazing that I've ever been to. They have really good lamb. I think yeah. for a more like mainstream restaurant, there's a lamb burger that's really good at um, Burgers and Brew. Yep. I always right. get that one. Yeah. It's really good. Yep. But yep. Yeah. It's fun to, oh, and there's a Burmese restaurant in Davis that has a really good spicy Ooh. lamb dish that is so good. Oh, that sounds really good. Yeah. It's really good. And yeah, it's neat to see. I mean, I guess you expect to have lamb at a Basque restaurant and it's, you know, that's the claim to fame, but it's really neat to see lamb on these kind of more ma mainstream restaurants that aren't like your steakhouse where you expect yeah. to have your, you know, more expensive dishes. And yeah. so seeing it incorporated into kind of a daily menu is really cool. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and I think, that's a that's one of the ways I've enjoyed getting exposed to some of the the ethnic market for lamb too is going to some of these other restaurants where lamb is is more commonly used in those cultures and, mm -hmm. and tasting how how it's prepared there. There's a there's a little Mexican restaurant in Sierra Valley of all places that has amazing lamb shanks and um, just there's a, another Mexican restaurant here in Auburn that we've actually sold um, lamb and mutton to and uh, mutton tacos prepared right are pretty doggone amazing. Oh yeah. I bet. <laughs> They're really good. Yeah. Really good. What um, have you ever had lamb that, that you didn't like? I'm not a huge fan of mint jelly. I wouldn't say that I've had lamb that I didn't like. I think right. I've been blessed with really good cooks in my life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I've never really been a fan of mint jelly. And so that when that comes with it, I'm like, I don't understand, which is funny because I love the green thing that my grandma makes. So. <laughs> <laughs> or used to make. Yeah. yeah, I'm not a big mint jelly fan either. I would almost rather have like a pepper jelly if I'm going to do jelly. Yeah. Yeah. That would be good. Yeah. I've, <laughs> talking about family dynamics um my in-laws both preferred meat well done huh. and i just couldn't ever bring myself to do a well Did done rack of lamb no ruin it i'll put it in the microwave for you but i'm not gonna do it you can have the end there. pieces yeah, yeah. the microwave <laughs> my sister yeah. was the same way growing up she didn't like rare or medium rare and so my mom would cook it and then she'd slice off her pieces. She now she eats the end pieces. She can she doesn't need yeah. extra attention. But when we were younger, she would just sear it more. <laughs> for her. But, yeah. Yeah. That's funny how, how everybody's tastes are different. And funny how um at least I am unwilling to, yeah, <laughs> to do what adapt. I consider ruining a good piece yeah. of meat. I think <laughs> texture comes into it a lot too. Like I think so too. Yeah, my daughter doesn't like shrimp, and I was the same way when I was younger. And it huh. wasn't a taste thing; I think it was all texture because I liked other seafood. But yeah, I was like, "Oh, don't worry, you'll grow out of it." I did. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Do you have you had any experience with um, with lamb sausage of any kind? Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> May have been in something, but not that I know of. I know that Superior did like a beef lamb combo Italian sausage for a while. 
Oh, is that the one that Ryan's face was in? (laughs) I think so. Yeah. 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 (laughs) We've done, uh, I've done Italian, made homemade Italian sausage and bass chorizo um, with lamb. It's really, really, really good. And if the lamb's got enough fat on it, we, we don't typically add any other fat. It's just, it, it's really tasty. Cool. Something I'd like to learn more how to do to make both fresh sausage and, and learn how to make some cured sausage too. Yeah. We don't, yeah. we, if I use sausage, I usually take it out of the links. I don't think I make a lot of sausage that's still in link form unless it's like a, a German sausage mm-hmm. and having mm-hmm. it that way. <laughs> but yeah. That's true. Brian's family, they do German sausage is a traditional thing for them around Christmas. And so oh, cool. they have that, it's like a big spiral sausage. Yeah. I don't know what it's called. Yeah. 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 So they've taught me how to prepare that so that I can do that. That's cool. I'm like, hey, wait a minute. Hey, this is your deal. <laughs> yeah. But it's, I happily eat it. So I'm happy to keep it going. <laughs> we do, when we've done the chorizo, I use lamb casings. So they're smaller sausages Mm -hmm. and rather than twist them into individual links i'll just spiral them and then we we cut them into like one pound spirals and put them on the barbecue hole oh man they're so good that way yeah so good that way that's cool yeah that's how that german sausage is prepared that's cool i'm getting hungry i'm gonna have to take a break (laughs) and go eat (laughs) we'll be back in an hour everybody yeah (laughs) drooling Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, any anything else on lamb meals or preparation or because I'm going to totally change subjects here in a minute. I know. I used to use ground lamb a lot more, but it's kind of doubled in price and so I I can't I just can't bring myself to get it when ground beef is right next to it. I still have the price, but I miss it because it really does bring a whole different dynamic. And it was kind of fun making different ethnic foods. And yeah, yeah. Okay. We just took, um, took finished lambs into Superior. And I think they'll, they're going to ship them back up to our, one of our local meat markets. But I think we're going to do, I, I love boneless shoulders, but I think we're going to have the shoulders all ground for all these lambs because it's so easy when you get home from work to pull a pound of ground meat out and yeah. do something with it. So yeah. And well in the stuffing that I made last year, so I, I've kind of been adapting the recipe each year. <laughs> and last year I used ground lamb. And this year I was like, I don't have any. So we used elk instead that we well, had. But that was good. It was really good. Yeah. yeah. But and I have a little meat grinder, like a kitchen size one, not a big one. But so I was able to make it ground elk and mix some I put some pork butt in there to add some fat and that was really good. But, we did about 25 pounds of ground venison out of the deer I got this year and did Italian sausage, breakfast sausage, and then some just burger and put enough pork fat in it that it we we barbecued the burgers a couple of weeks ago and they held together nice. And oh, nice. that was really tasty too. Yeah. Yeah. I want to do so I, I think we we had our our little necropsy workshop right before Thanksgiving. And the folks that came to that were interested in doing a like a home butchery yeah. workshop. 
I want to cut a lamb like I would process a deer. Mm-hmm. So do a backstrap and do tenderloins, you know, do do those things that you would do with wild game just to see how they are, but they'd be spectacular. With yeah. Lamb. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 That was a great workshop. That was kind of fun showing them how strong intestines are and say, yes. (laughs) And then you related to things like, you know, this is why we use them for casings because they can hold a product. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. That was fun. I did get, I think there's there, they haven't sent me the final report from those years. Um, but I did get kind of the, the last preliminary report back and there's some interesting stuff one of them was fine for selenium one of them was low yeah i got um, those two. <laughs> oh, good good yeah that's right i put your yeah. email on there yeah, anything was... that stood out to you on on those um well so what was interesting we sent in one section of intestines just to show people how you would section out intestines if you were worried about it but there's i think that report shows why it's good to do it normally because while we didn't see anything wrong with the intestines and even the intestinal contents they didn't have any parasite eggs in there i mean it was small intestines it was probably not the best it's not like the end of the gi tract where all the eggs would culminate yeah um but they did see some coccidia in the the mucosa of the intestines which yeah. i was like oh that's really interesting and i mean yeah. it's normal to have some yeah. coccidia but yeah but i i thought that was interesting too yeah um and, and no as i recall i don't have it up in front of me but um there were there was some evidence of opp yeah that will be interesting and i think it's because you wrote it in your history but really cool that they're following up with it because they found some things on histology. So looking under the microscope that suggested or that are consistent with OPP infection. So like more smooth muscle, more like hypertrophy of certain things like vessels and things like that. And I don't know that they would have called it OPP otherwise, because there was an abscess in that one. And so But what they're going to do is called immunohistochemistry or IHC, where they basically stain the slide with antibodies or they they wash the slide with antibodies that should bind to OPP virus. And if the virus is there, then it'll illuminate and so they can tell where or it'll have a color to it so they can tell if the if the what they're seeing basically if that's caused likely caused by the virus being there which will be really cool and i don't you know i don't know that they would have done that if you hadn't put that in your history so that's another thing that's really important is making sure that the history includes as much as you can remember and we get so focused on one thing but it's important to try to include some other pieces Yeah. yeah yeah that's that's a really good point for for folks that weren't aware, we did a, a necropsy workshop and euthanized um, two ewes in, from our flock that had tested positive for OPP. Um, and then, of course, as always happens to sheep producers, the following day I went out to feed lambs. And <laughs> yeah. One of the lambs was upside down dead. So if he could have only died a day earlier, we could have 
could have had one more specimen for folks to get some experience with. Yeah. One of the wild things, which I think was really good to demonstrate there was I think normally if we're opening an animal for necropsy, we're doing it quick. And yeah. I mean, ultimately even that necropsy will become quick because people will become more experienced with it. And that yeah. was one of the comments that I really took to heart was that we just don't have the time to do this, like right. to spend an hour cutting open an animal. Well, this is only taking an hour because we're showing you every single step, but right. Right. It does take a long time when you get, when you're just starting. Yeah. Um, but when you, you know, learn what normal looks like, that's the hardest thing is just trying right. to figure out, is this even normal? Right. Once you learn with nor what normal looks like and get through the steps, you can get those things done really quickly. But what was really telling to me is like taking the pluck out or where you basically release the tongue from the throat and then you kind of pulling the trachea or the yeah, the trachea and the esophagus out was, goes really quickly. The hard part is getting the ribs open and the lung and heart out. Right. And normally it's not that super hard, but for whatever reason on that first sheep, it was really hard. And if you looked at her, their left side down and her right lung was normal. And so if yeah. I had just opened her up to see that right lung, I would have been like, great, no pneumonia. Right. But we took the pluck out and her whole left side was, I, I wouldn't, I mean, it was pneumonia, but yeah. it was more, I don't know. It was so interesting. It was like yeah. full of pus and she yeah. didn't have any signs and. No, no, but, and it wasn't, you know, didn't seem particularly sick or anything like that. Yeah. And I wouldn't yeah. even have thought, you know, oh, I need to look at that other side because this yeah. side looks so normal. And so that was really a good reminder why. We take that whole thing out. And we look at every part of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the other the other benefit that we need to follow up with the the folks that came, but I'm certainly if I get a stillborn lamb or find a lamb that I'm not sure whether it ever got up or not, mm -hmm. I've, I've got now the kind of the confidence to go in and at least see if the lungs ever inflated. And, yeah. Yeah. And kind of take a look at it now, which I think could be helpful. That lambing time. Yeah. Too. Yeah. You have to figure out what to float it in. Yeah. Yeah. A cup of coffee. Yeah. There goes that coffee. <laughs> yeah. Now that, you know, maybe, maybe that's something to think about for the lambing school. If we have something that we can preserve close enough to the school to be able to do that for folks too. Yeah. Yeah. That would be really cool. And those don't take a lot of tools because their bones are so pliable that you can cut through them with basically anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So those, those are really fast compared to adult use. Yeah. It's interesting. After that we had, you know, we, we've, planned how we were going to dispose of those carcasses ahead of the workshop, but it was not easy to do. And I can imagine, so, you know, that that is a big challenge, right? Yep. I have heard <laughs> yep. that it's a big challenge for folks with how to dispose of carcasses and rendering is so expensive because there's so few of them in the state now. I think there's only yeah. two. Yeah. And so the transportation, there's multiple pickup locations, but the actual rendering plants, it takes so much to transport animals to yeah. them. Yeah. So that has really driven up the cost. And so I was, I got to go to a mortality composting workshop 
at Chico State and they're just oh, yeah. starting the conversation with um a lot of the agencies that regulate that type of disposal. Yeah. It was really interesting and it's actually in um in California code that you can't compost mammalian tissue. Yeah. Um, so that has to be changed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's like 30 something other States that allow for mortality composting. And it's, it's incredible because otherwise they're these carcasses, if they can't be rendered for whatever reason, there, some counties do allow them to go to a landfill or they're being left as bone piles, which, you know, isn't, better than composting. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. a really good conversation and well, I'm excited to see where it goes and we're hoping to keep these meetings going. So we keep momentum going. Cause that was one of the participants who was there who helped kind of moderate the discussion was like, I don't want to be talking about this 10 years later Yeah, right. and having the same conversation. We need this to go somewhere. Need to figure it out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was cool. Well, that's a good transition to the the last topic I wanted to talk about today, too. Um, You know, bone piles are a a big potential issue with predators, um, and especially with wolves, but all predators are are, um, opportunistic scavengers, too. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the, the things that has been suggested as one of the more important things we can do where there's wolves is to eliminate bone piles. Um, you have a, a 1,800-pound bull that dies in the middle of a 50,000-acre Forest Service allotment five it's miles from the road. some attention. <laughs> yeah, you're probably not going to haul that to the road and, and send it to the renderer. No. Um, <laughs> I just I'll come back to this. <laughs> um, but but one of the, the big questions that has come up um and it, it applies to all livestock, but there's I think there's less information from the U.S. on this than other places. Is kind of the indirect impacts, production impacts associated with having livestock in the presence of predators. Um, and I, I suspect there's different impacts depending on the type of hunter the predator is. Mm-hmm. But especially with wolves. Um, yeah, with their where Yeah. So what, I guess... One of the things that that has come up in conversations with our state wildlife folks is what are those indirect impacts and how might you measure the cost of them um, to a producer? So what what are kind of the, the stress-related impacts that you would expect to, to manifest themselves in sheep? What would you be looking for? Well, I think the... F- what some of these studies are measuring is flocking behavior mm-hmm. or grazing behavior. Mm-hmm. And they, they'll see sheep flock tighter together when there's predators present. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then it also, I think takes more labor because right. in order for you to get sheep to actually graze the full kind of, uh, capacity of the pasture that you actually have to move them because they won't disperse as much as they would without that predator pressure. Right. They're more vigilant and less, less comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, so they're, I think they're spending less time 
gets bedded down as well. So at night they tend to get up more and mm-hmm. they're more active at night. Mm-hmm. And that probably has a lot to do with dogs running through them, trying to, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> and barking right. and, um, right. but yeah, just the activity at night is going to be more in those situations. And so they won't get the same amount of rest bedded down. Um, so you will see kind of less, it can impact rate of gain or like just feed consumption. They're probably, they're not grazing as much and using as much of the resources that are out there. And then they're more active at night than they would normally be. So that'll impact their kind of level of maintenance. Um, and then, yeah, just cortisol, which is the stress hormone that we typically think about measuring. And I think stress has, is more broad than just cortisol, but cortisol is one of those hormones that we measure and just high levels of cortisol chronically will also impact other systems. Like the immune system is the one that we typically think of. And so it can make them more prone to diseases. And if you had that kind of chronic long-term stress, would you expect to see some wool quality impacts as well? Maybe wool break or or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And we, there's um, anemia of chronic disease. And so you can, with chronic inflammation, chronic Mm -hmm. things like that, one of the body's responses is to reduce the amount of iron available because bacteria need iron. And so you can start seeing impacts like that long-term just because of chronic stress, chronic inflammation, those kinds of things, mm-hmm. um, actually impacting the health of the animal. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's interesting. Like some of the anecdotal stories we've heard from folks that they've shared where they've never had diseases that they necessarily yeah. had to vaccinate for even and now they're yeah. having to vaccinate but still seeing the disease and you I think we talked about how well you know if they're so immunocompromised that they're exhibiting a disease that was probably I mean these like clostridial diseases are in the soil it's not like it was recently introduced they've always yeah, been there always been there yeah they've just never had the expression of the disease the pathogen's been there and so if they're that immunocompromised where now they're expressing disease to think that a vaccine is going to help is well it'll probably help a little bit but you still have to have a immune competent animal to be able to respond to, to, to that respond. vaccine yeah. yeah i i think that that piece of indirect impact is really interesting because i think that that you know most people talk about loss of concept or lower conception rates lower weight gain Mm -hmm. but i think you know you start thinking about immunocompromised animals not only does that animal suffer in terms of a lack of productivity and and thriftiness but it's more labor you're doing a vaccine where you maybe you didn't have to do it before Mm-hmm. Um, you're buying a vaccine that you didn't have to buy before. All of those are are indirect impacts that that add up to what could be a pretty significant cost, I would think. 
Yeah. And then they talk about how, you know, with decreased conception rates, that's one on the female side because of that right. chronic stress, but right. also on the RAM side, they're not covering as many females because of right. their increased activity at night. They're not getting that downtime. So they just don't have the capacity right. to cover as many females during the day. Um, but stress can also impact sperm quality. Yeah. Yeah. So. At a meeting right before Thanksgiving, so I actually the day after our workshop, and um, a producer from Northeastern California. So California now has three wolf packs that we know of, probably probably additional wolves out in the landscape, um, and there have been no reported sheep depredations, mm-hmm. but we had a producer come from northeastern california to this meeting who um a couple of years ago had sheep at the home place chased through a fence by wolves um then and and their herder saw the wolves um, chased a mile away over alfalfa onto a state highway um, where additional sheep got hit by a semi and the, the driver actually saw the wolves chasing the sheep up the highway. And this producer said, in addition to the, the sheep that were lost directly, um, they of course were bred ewes. And so they did have a, a more than normal number of abortions afterwards. But one of the interesting things that she said, which I hadn't really thought about, was that those sheep for the next year responded totally different to her herding dogs and to the guard dogs. Because mm-hmm. of that one event with a canine predator, mm-hmm. um, she said they were much harder to handle. They were much more vigilant and nervous um, for a significant period of time. And that's got to have some some production and labor impacts, I would think, too, just because they become more difficult to handle. Mm-hmm. I, how would we go about measuring that? I guess I guess survey work would be part of the way to to begin to get a handle on that, wouldn't it? Yeah. And I know when I first started, we were talking about potential ways to measure chronic stress in sheep. And it's really interesting that they do, you can measure cortisol in wool. And so you can kind of measure the challenge with that, that I think uh, was brought up with those proposals is that it would be really hard to have a control and right. a you right. know, wolf. Uh, right. Who wants, to, who wants to be the unprotected flock? Yeah. So, yeah. but even with dogs, and I mean that, it, I still think it would be important to understand the difference between a flock that you know lives in the valley and doesn't have that pressure compared to a flock that lives. But there, I mean the. I mean, rightfully so. There's different nutrition resources. Right. There's there the whole right. environment is different. So right. you can't it wouldn't necessarily be com- easy to compare flocks that are in totally different environments right. and their cortisol levels because there's so many factors that influence that. But so that would be challenging. Um I think surveys would be really helpful just to understand 
what kinds of impacts people are seeing now, because we do, I mean, they're, they are their own control, right? You know, hopefully people have numbers of what they were doing 10 years ago and how that might be different now. Yeah. Um, Again, there's going to, there's always factors that are different that make it hard to compare even within their own flocks the difference um, because we have less precipitation now than we did 10 years ago. (laughs) I was saying this to Brian the other day that I I am my own worst enemy when it comes to designing research projects because I can think of all the flaws, but (laughs) at least when, if we were to pursue something like that, we would know the limitations, but it's still really important to, I think, have that documented. And I do too. And I, I think, you know, one of the things we've started doing on livestock guardian dogs um, in particular, but other predator protection tools is just systematically recording case studies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the environment's different. The year every year is different. The sheep are different. The dogs are different. But if we record the same kind of information about every particular case that we have an opportunity to record, I think that gives producers some some value too to just be able to say, this is different than my environment, but this one's pretty similar. And here's kind of how it worked. I think mm-hmm. I think it's a mistake for us not to get the information out to folks, even if it's not a perfectly controlled study. Yeah. We and that's why we do, it. you know, we repeat other studies to see right. if it does apply to a different right. environment. You know, right. like they might be doing a study in Nebraska that we want to do here in California because things are very different and, yeah. you know, see if we do have the same findings. And if we do, that's interesting. If we don't, that's interesting. And, uh, yeah. you know, there's still yeah. important findings. Yeah. That comes out of that that leads to more questions and yep. kind of, yeah, helps provide a direction but I think yeah that surveys are hard it's really hard to get people to participate in surveys um I don't know the best way and then if you send out a survey people will self-select right so people who have a problem will be more likely to participate in the survey versus those that really don't have much of a problem. They're like, ah, this doesn't really impact me. So it's hard to get that kind of comparable data. Um, Yeah. Yeah. You have to pay people to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least pay somebody to collect it. I think, I think mailed surveys are tough. I think, you know, I, I did, um, when I was working on my master's did a drought impact survey of cattle and sheep producers and um, it was all phone surveys for the, a couple of in-person, but mostly phone surveys. And actually that is really time consuming, but it was really, really fun. That's cool. Um, I had one producer who you will also know um, who will remain anonymous, but <laughs> usually the surveys took about 45 minutes. And I think we talked for about two hours. Wow. And it was great. I learned so much. Yeah. And we got all done. And this producer said, you know, this is the nicest phone conversation I've had in a couple of years. This was great. <laughs> and it was, it was, it was really fun. Cause it was just, it was kind of like doing a podcast, you know? Yeah. Where you get to ask some questions and listen and see how it goes. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's cool. Yeah. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I think that's something we need to work on. I think. I think there's some value in in trying to document some of those indirect impacts and what they cost. 
Yeah. And the difference between wolves and bears and mountain, and mountain lions. lions. Yep. And yep. Mountain lions are really sneaky. So maybe they're not as, you know, maybe they don't have the same level of direct, indirect impacts. Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. Exactly. I got a text from the neighbor where the rams were grazing yesterday that she saw, quote, huge coyote run through your pasture. Mm. So fun. <laughs> yeah, that's always a good text to get when you're at work. <laughs> Great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, what's going on this this next couple of weeks for you? Wrapping up the year. Yeah. Oh gosh. I don't even know. I have a lot of presentations coming up and articles that I have to write. So I think it's going to, hopefully I can find some time in the office to be creative and get those done. Um, but I'm excited about those. I like, I like doing them. It, it takes a lot of time to prepare for them, but um, yeah. So I get to give a webinar for, not for, but with the Iowa State university dairy extension and so it's the dairy goat webinar and so those cool. usually get national attention because they're webinars and yeah. um so that'll be fun yeah. oh that one's actually a meeting Ugh, i'm so confused <laughs> <laughs> i'm the only person zooming in i think is what it is they have in-person meetings that they're doing but yeah so that'll be fun um yeah and just kind of preparing for some of the meetings coming up we have goat day coming up in january and cool yeah. Yeah. Oh, speaking of surveys, I saw on Instagram that Wyoming, the Wyoming Wool Initiative is they're doing a RAM baseline survey. That looks really interesting. Oh, cool. So if you raise RAMs, I encourage you to find their link somewhere on the interweb or on Instagram and fill out their survey because that would be really interesting to see. And that's the Wyoming Wool Initiative? That's where I saw it. It is okay. being done through Wyoming, uh, I think the University of Wyoming. Okay. Um, Check that out. I get in trouble for the university names. Is it the college, the university? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Wyoming State? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. That's very yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. So if you have Rams, go there. It would be cool to get some participation for their project. And ASI is coming up in about six or seven weeks in Fort Worth. Yeah. And I think we'll all be there kind of in passing. I'm only be there for about 24 hours, but uh, <laughs> that should be fun. That'll be fun. Yeah. yeah. And think, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I think we'll actually all be in the same place for once. <laughs> I think we will. I think for we a little will. Bit. Maybe we'll have to do another um, after hours from the bar podcast yes yeah that'd be fun <laughs> i we are doing i think i've mentioned this but um at the society for range management meeting in february in boise we have a full day of sheet programming um I have a symposium in the morning with kind of current research and then a workshop in the afternoon talking about how to collaborate on sheep and rangeland topics um probably a, a trip to the Basque block somewhere in there as well. So that Very should be, cool. that should be really fun. And we've got, um, we're going to record a podcast there. I've got uh, Bianca Soares from Star Creek oh, gonna good. Be on a panel. And then we'll have John Helly from Duckworth and, and the Helly ranch in Montana yeah. and uh, Reed Anderson from Oregon will be there as well. So I'm really excited about hearing from 
from some real innovators in the sheep business. When is that? That will be the the workshop is uh, February thirteenth. Okay. So stay tuned. Cool. We uh, we should have fun with that. I got to figure out how to record it now. But well, yeah, you'll have to take Ryan's portable thing that yes. I brought to Denver. Yes. It's a little tricky to figure out how to get started, but it has pretty nice sound quality. <laughs> Maybe Ryan can, or John, probably John, can give me a lesson on how to use yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's good. I think you, as long as they're available to FaceTime you when. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Troubleshoot. Troubleshoot. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Exactly. No. All right. Well, this has been great. I always love talking with you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. This I think been... you get to take us out, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is sheep stuff you should know. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next time. <laughs> Bye. Have a great week. You too.